campaign. It was a movie starring Drew Barrymore and she died like three minutes in. Yeah, but that was a surprise for everybody yeah, watching it. And that made it actually genuinely scary because you really right. didn't know what was happening in the film. Yeah, and then there's a little bit of like, is she going to be a ghost? And it's like, nah, dude. She's no, she's, she died. pals and gals and welcome to another episode of XOXO Riverdale. Riverdale. I'm, I'm Louis Pearlman. I was gonna do spooky too and didn't think I could get through it. I'm glad you went spooky. <laughs> we did. We both went spooky because this is your favorite Riverdale recap podcast hosted by two fans who are too old to be watching the show. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and, you know, like and subscribe, blotty, blotty blues, share us on social media, all that stuff. This is our super fun bonus uh, Halloween spooky episode. What are we doing today, Kate? It's going to be really fun. We watched some uh, spooky, scary Halloween movies with cast members, and we're going to talk about them. And then there's also one that we didn't watch, but we've both seen, and it's fine. We're going to talk about it as though we did. That is correct. That is correct. So today we are talking about, if you want to, you know, pause the podcast and watch these four movies before we get back into it. <laughs> we only, we don't recommend all of them. No, that's we true. We recommend half of them. We recommend half of them. Yeah. So we've got Scream. Right, which we recommend. Which which we recommend that has Skeet Ulrich in it. Yes. And then we've got Sleepwalkers. Right, which has uh, Madchen in it, which we do not recommend. Yeah, Madchen's in that one. And then we have Polaroid. Right. That has... Uh, uh, Madeline. <laughs> Madeline in it. And we do not recommend. We don't recommend it. And then Coyote Lake, which has uh, Camilla yeah. in it which I super recommend, but Coyote Lake is also not a spooky movie. It wasn't like a thrill. I, I went off, I went through their IMDb's, picked movies I hadn't heard about. Yes. And then looked at the descriptions. Was it like a thriller? Yeah, it's a crime thriller. So, okay. so that one isn't necessary for the Halloween season, but it's actually the one that I think we probably recommend the most out of all of them. Probably. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, I didn't really pay attention. Big yeah. Scream fan, but oh yeah, Scream's wonderful, scream. and we can talk yeah. about Scream for sure. Yeah. Uh, in more detail, because Scream is was it a really important movie for me as a teenager. So yeah, and it's really important for. Uh, Katie Holmes Day for everyone who watches AP Bio and Kevin Williamson's career path. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get to those movies, let's talk about if there's any Riverdale fan news that we want to talk about. So I have, it's not really Riverdale exactly, but Netflix in November will be releasing a new Christmas movie that has like fucking everyone in it, um, including like Keegle Mike. Keegan Michael Key and Forrest Whitaker and like a bunch of other people and it is called Jingle Jangle. <laughs> oh, you know what actually speaking of Jingle Jangle, you know what happened since uh we last recorded uh-huh. is I did a really fun Zoom interview with uh Ron Dante from the Archies. Wow. The, the lead singer of the Archies. 
fun. Uh, yeah, it was really fun. It was through uh, my friend Becky, who hosts a bubblegum music radio show. And uh, she asked me to, to basically co-host with her and then, you know, like do like mind the Zoom, <laughs> you know, make sure yeah. there weren't any crazy fans that came in and bothered him, like stuff like that. Oh, so yeah, I sort of fielded the questions, did that sort uh -huh. of thing as well. Uh, but it meant that I got to chat with him and ask him some questions as well. And just something that's kind of interesting, I think, for our fandom is that he said that he's really grateful for Riverdale because it's actually drawn a lot of younger people to his shows that want to hear the Archie songs played live because they've looked into them because of the show. I didn't know they were still playing live. Oh, well, it's Ron. Ron, Ron does yeah. a lot of touring. Uh, obviously not right now for obvious reasons, but Ron very often tours uh, with the Happy Together tour, which is like a whole bunch of 60s legacy acts touring yeah. together. It's like the Turtles and the Cow Sills and like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, Three Dog Night and Ron Dante from the Archies, you know, like those yeah. types of people. So he does a lot of touring. And then he also does some touring on his own. Uh, you know, in smaller venues, like he's not like, I'm not like my superstar friend, Ron Dante, you know, yeah, he's like, not calling out like Harry Styles is. No, of course not. You know, and he wouldn't expect that, but he is a total, uh, he really does radiate mega positivity. He's just like a really funny, nice, like pretty unassuming, happy dude who loves that his career is singing these songs after all this time. He yeah. collects Archie memorabilia. Oh. <laughs> so like in his room in his office he was in there was all this archie stuff around yeah. and uh i was wearing my archie's as the ramon shirt that i have and he was like oh my god i was gonna wear the same shirt and then i decided not to <laughs> um, i think kindness is like really popular right now like i think that's like why shit creek one stuff and like ted lasso's great and i'm just gonna plug everything i want to talk about i want to talk about ted lasso yeah be halloween which oh yeah <laughs> i think ted lasso is an easier sell weirdly i know like a lot of people think it's a hard sell if they don't know who bill lawrence is it's a bill lawrence show he did scrubs he did stin city he did cougar town he did yes Club. uh everything he's done is good um ub halloween is the new adam sandler movie on netflix yes someone called it the canteen boy movie that they somehow got out of paying Lauren for. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that's very funny <laughs> but it's like it actually is very lovely and like a good it's it feels very it's kinder than like happy gilmore and billy madison but still has that vibe yeah yeah like, yeah back to like good adam sandler not dramatic adam sandler not uncut gems adam sandler but like early yeah. adam sandler but with, yeah like, a good more good kind. comedy adam sandler yeah yeah it's you know it has rob schneider it has kevin james it has, oh it has all his fucking it has house all, the whole gang's back down is ray liotta it has uh steve buscemi oh my it, god it's truly steve, that steve, and it has julie steve. bowen's love interest which is like Steve Buscemi, last scene in the audience of the last show that I saw in New York before New York shut down. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Steve Buscemi she is at the same Bush Tetris show as me. Yeah. Yeah, I think she was in, like, basketball. So, like, she's been, she wasn't in, like, an Adam Sandler movie, but she's, like, tangent. Like, she's yeah, in she's in that world. She's in yeah. that cinematic universe. <laughs> the cinematic universe. The, like, sort of, like, chintzy comedy cinematic universe. Yeah, so, like, just, <laughs> it was great. 
Um, one last thing, sorry, just before we move on, one last little thing about Ron Dante is just that we had a bit of a bigger chat about Riverdale. <laughs> Uh-huh. And he sort of has like a bit of a party line about his opinions about Riverdale that you could tell is coming from like an older boomer generation man uh-huh. where he's like, he's like, I don't really agree with everything they're doing with the characters. And he's like, and I was pretty shocked that they named a drug Jingle Jangle, but I also thought it was hilarious. And uh-huh. it means that, you know, uh, people want to hear me sing Jingle Jangle, which is great for me. But he's like, but boy, I certainly don't watch the sh- that show all the time. And I'm like, yeah, you don't need to, man, in your 70s. Like, it's not for you. It's not no, for you. It's and not for why. you. But it's funny. It's funny, though, because, you know, he really he's really like if you think of the brand and the trajectory of the brand, he's sort of like he is the KJ Appa of his time. Like he's the, his voice is what propelled that brand into like a huge amount of recognizability for young people in the 60s. Yeah. So it's funny that, you know, this is a thing that he's sort of had to abandon because trends have moved into something else in terms of like what people want from these characters and from the brand yeah. and why they've been so successful, why Riverdale's been so successful. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> oh, I saw um, Lily Reinhardt's book of poetry in Target and then didn't buy it, but I saw it. It's out there. Oh, wonderful. Well, everybody yeah. check that out the next time you're in a Target, preferably masked. Yes, I was I was waiting for the pharmacy to fill my prescription. So yes. I was just like doing that walk, that like Target circle and- yep. The Target walk, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, any other big Riverdale news? Uh, I think we, you mentioned uh, Skeet's last day on set. Yeah, so Skeet had his last day on set and then he did a really lovely Instagram post about it where he yeah. said that he'll never forget what a wonderful time he had on the show and how important the show was to him which is yeah. great. And on to, you know, different things for Skeet, which is fine. Yeah. Which is oh, and I have a bone to pick with Cole. Oh, please. What is it? He, he was like, he did a photo shoot doing like a bunch of different jobs. And he was like planning for the next, like my next and second economic collapse. And I was like, boy, you were alive in 08. You've had two already. Yeah, totally. You're looking out for your third economic collapse. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that he forgot about one of them. Yeah, I guess, well, he was like 15, 14, 15, so I guess Yeah, so probably didn't affect him as much, yeah. Yeah, he was like on the Disney Channel. Is that when he was on, was he 15 when he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think like that was like the upper end. Yeah, totally, of uh, whatever that show is called. Also in, also in the Adam Sandler Cinematic Universe. That is correct, which we (laughs) are, you know, spoiler alert, we're probably going to do an episode about that at some point. Yeah, we sort of got our uh, wires crossed and thought we were doing big daddy this week and uh which is real dopey on my part because it is the halloween season it's not big daddy season big daddy season is clearly the middle of november <laughs> it's like, or like january i don't remember enough but i remember it looking cold in the movie oh yeah and i've i've never seen it i've never seen big daddy I mean, I so. saw it, like when it came out sure <laughs> so yes <laughs> Anyway, but we're not going to talk about Big Daddy today. We're going to talk about these like super fun horror thriller films that you can watch for the season that it is. Yeah. So maybe why don't we start with Scream? Yeah. So the one Scream... one we recommend. Go for it, Kate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're comfortable also. We're comfortable spoil, spoiling it. Yeah, because uh... Scream is 7,000 years old. <laughs> At least that's the way it feels to me. It came out in 95, if I remember correctly. That's just off the top of my head. I was going to say 96. Let's look. 
Okay, yeah, it might be 96. It is 96. It's 96. Sweet. Okay, cool. So Scream came out in 96. So yeah, yeah so I, I was mean, prime age for it. I was 15 when it came I was out. six, so I was not. But <laughs> no. that's okay. <laughs> and I think it it kind of set off a real trend that like in horror where it was like a little bit campy, but still scary. And I think it like, I can't, there was like a real gap in like scary movies leading up to it. I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I it back off. I can, I can actually speak more to that because yeah. I was a big horror geek at the time. Yeah. And definitely what was interesting about Scream is that there was a period really from like sort of, I'd say, horror delved, mainly horror, the horror trend in the 80s was sort of this supernatural horror trend, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of spurred on by Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. And then also there, you know, there was a bit of a slasher bent as well to it. You know, really the kings of the horror box office were the Friday the 13th sequels and the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, which really all came out pretty quickly in the late 80s with each other. And mm-hmm. then there was also the Hellraiser series. Uh, the Leprechaun series started in the late 80s. There was Child's Play as well. Yeah. So it was sort of all of these kind of monsters You know, it was based around sort of these monsters. And then into the 90s, there were some sequels to those movies, but there weren't a lot of original ideas. Yeah, I feel like we were in like sequel town. Yeah, we were in sequel town, very much so. Yeah. And a a notable sequel that came out directly before Scream came out Mm -hmm. is the movie Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Uh, And that's a movie that Wes Craven wrote that is the seventh Nightmare on Elm Street movie and takes place, quote unquote, in our world. Uh So the lead from Nightmare on Elm Street, Heather Langenkamp, plays herself and Robert England plays himself and John Saxon, who's in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, plays himself and, and Wes Craven plays himself. And basically there's some sort of demon that has figured out how to cross over from the film world into our reality and starts stalking Heather Langenkamp. And he's taken the form of sort of this more menacing, darker, like kind of demonic Freddy. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I bring it up is it takes itself very seriously. It's a serious horror movie. It's very effective. It's a very, it's like, it's really underrated. It's one of my favorite movies. It's great. And a lot of horror fans would agree with me on this. This isn't mm-hmm. me being an outlier here, but it wasn't particularly successful when it came out, but it really begins to delve into how these movies work on a metatextual level. Mm-hmm. And then in the meantime, and Kevin Williamson who wrote Scream has never come out and said it, he may have been somewhat influenced by that movie. He may have just been thinking about these same ideas on his own. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a movie that kind of takes it one step further that is definitely a commentary on the structure of horror movies while being very funny, very sort of, it's a really fun movie. The the voice of the movie is very unique. He's a gay writer. I, I would argue that if you look back on Scream, the voice is super queer in that it's very culturally obsessed, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is pretty cool. And then, you know, he paired with 
Wes Craven who ended up making it. And it just shows what Wes Craven can do with a really good script. Because Wes Craven's a, a good director, but he's made some really terrible movies that mainly I would blame the writing. And yeah. Scream is excellent. Scream is so <laughs> fun. Anyway, that's that's my rant about sort of the trajectory about how that all happened. Yeah, it's definitely and I think uh, revitalized the horror genre. It speaks to Kevin Williamson because I feel like after that, then he did Dawson's Creek, which is just like totally different. Um, Definitely. But but the teenagers, I'd argue, in Dawson's Creek have a really similar voice to the teenagers in Scream. Yes. And I think it's so like that also was like, I know what you did last summertime and the faculty, not summertime is one word, but like the time of I know what you did last summer. Totally. Well, he wrote that as well. <laughs> yeah. I know what you did last summer. Yeah. And the faculty was around then. That's correct. But those are all because of Scream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Screams set off a new kind of trajectory for horror movies where. Yeah. Was yeah. that also, uh, oh God, they were made it as the strangers. I can't think of what it's called. <laughs> well, not child's play. No. Uh, <laughs> what was that? It's the one where it's like, ba it is based on true story where people are in like a cabin or remote cabin and they're just like terrorized by two people. Oh, I, I'm not familiar with that movie. You are. And then like- Cabin the in the Woods? Nope. No, 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 no. That was the Joss Whedon movie, right? Yeah, which is sort of actually, I'd say Scream influenced, but- um, Very much so. Yeah, for sure. What the fuck is that called? Like the whole premise spoiler is that when like they're finally like, why are you attacking us? They're like, well, your door was unlocked. Like they were just like looking to kill people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, can't think of what that first one was called. Uh, anyway- <laughs> Yeah, The Strangers was way later, though, so. Yeah, so Scream really kicked it off, and, like, I think the notable things that came out of Scream were the can the purposeful camp. Mm-hmm. I don't know necessarily if I define it as camp, though. Like, can we talk about that for a sec? Because yeah. camp is sort of uh, a bit of, like, a... It's a, it's a bit of, a, like, a, a winking awareness. Yeah. While Scream had, like... Scream has a bit of a different awareness where it's like it acknowledges all the conventions, but then it still manages to make those conventions really effective. Like it's still a really effectively scary movie. It's like kind of a different thing. I think, think? It, I think it has some camp in there though. That's fair. I think like, especially like, and we'll talk about them later, like the Drew Barrymore opening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think that like really has that. Like so for people who haven't seen it and who don't remember the campaign, it was a movie starring Drew Barrymore and she died like 3 minutes in. Yeah, but that was a surprise for everybody yeah, watching it and that made it actually genuinely scary cuz you really right. didn't know what was happening in the film. Yeah, and then there's a little bit of like is she going to be a ghost? And it's like, "Nah, dude." She's no, she's dead. she died. That girl yeah. died. Yeah. <laughs> and Ghostface, like people who they don't even know who the Ghostface is like from Scream. They just like know that mask. And I don't know if you know this, but so the killer in Scream, the Ghostface, uh -huh. that is a mask they found at a Halloween store. That makes uh, sense. Yeah, they very intentionally went out and tried to source from just something that was already around. Yeah. And it's very unique looking, but also uh looks sort of chintzy enough to be which i think is very cool you know yeah, to be really something that that's just like, mass produced yeah yeah it has the whole uh masked voice thing which is mm -hmm. very common now and it had i think it was pretty it had the two killers thing 
which and then I was trying to think of another movie that did that, and the only one I can think of was Scream Four. <laughs> so, yes. like pretty... that was an excellent twist at the time. Right. So absolutely. Yeah, there were like the way they pulled it off is that there were two people doing it together. Yeah, who had the same costume. Yeah. Yeah, so... and and that was a really really fun twist in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, and the pacing of it is great, and yeah. it has some really excellent human grounded moments which is what makes it so good is that it's super fun but you feel for the characters mm -hmm. they feel quite real they don't feel particularly disposable for the most part Sydney prescott is like the opposite of disposable in that she can't die at this point that's correct she's the she's sort of the crux of the series now that's right played by nev campbell and sort of is the quintessential final girl at yep. this point yeah but it definitely is uh it, it really did set a trend you're right but a lot of the stuff that was like kevin williamson adjacent i would argue wasn't as smart as scream was just sort of cashing in on the fact that he was so hot at the time uh yeah. you know because like i know what you did last summer it's not a campy film Who it's, was it was like it was a real person it was a fisherman that was a killer right yeah, and it's basically like sort of a play on urban myths. It's like man right. with the hook for a hand. Right. I know what you did last summer. That like not supernatural killer thing. It went grounded, which I believe mm -hmm. the faculty was pretty grounded too, if I recall correctly. No, I think the faculty is about aliens. Is it? Yeah, I think the faculty, all the teachers end up being aliens. I only remember John Stewart was a teacher in it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, but yeah, I, I never saw the faculty, but I had a poster of Elijah Wood from the faculty uh, above my bed when I was in college. Va va voom. Yeah, baby. Yeah, but um, yeah, definitely worth watching over over Halloween for sure. <laughs> and Scream Two, the sequel, is really good. And then, and all all four of the Scream movies are directed by Wes Craven. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Scream 3 and Scream 4, not so great, but still kind of fun to see the cast together. I think Scream 4, there was a big enough break between 3 and 4 that 4 was able to get a new audience and throw back harder to the first one. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and they went back to the two killer thing. And yeah, yeah. My opinion about Scream 4 is that it feels a little more like a TV reunion special, but is still super fun. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like it does, it sort of helps that in those first three, so many people died that there, it feels a little TV reunion, but there's also only three people that were in the first one. That's right. Yeah. Um, because everyone else died. So, yeah, and it brought in some like young stars that now like everyone knows. I mm -hmm. think we're fairly known by then. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and then now we know Scream 5 is coming out in January. And I know literally nothing about it other than the fact that the S is not a 5. And that is a missed opportunity. Yeah, it's Scream disgusting. 4, in Scream 4, the 4 was the A. And that makes sense. And I don't know why the S is in a 5. Yeah, and I think for Scream 3, maybe the, the, e. the E was a 3. Yeah. Yeah. And for Scream 2, the 2 was a 2. <laughs> The two was at the end of the word scream. It was it was the predecessor of the word scream. It was the number two. Yeah, and uh, for scream, the first scream, they didn't use a number because it was the first film in the series. I don't know if, if our listeners know how that works. That was a pretty big choice on their part. Big choice. Another big innovative move that Scream made as a film. 
is that it wasn't the first one was not a sequel. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> uh, also, too, uh, one more thing about the first one that I'm just reminded of when we are talking about this uh-huh. is it was one of the first films, uh, horror films, to make direct references to other horror movies mm-hmm. within the fabric of the movie and assume that the audience had seen these movies or had an awareness of them as well. Yeah. And definitely that felt culturally like a leap. It felt like a change. For, you know, always in 80s horror movies, they were always throwing respect over to each other. You can tell that all the people making them were fans of each other. Uh-huh. Like just for example, in um, Evil Dead 2, you can see yeah. Freddy Krueger's glove hanging in uh, the like uh, uh, garage where they have all the tools. Right. And then in Nightmare on Elm Street, I think it's Nightmare on Elm Street three or four, they're playing Evil Dead two uh, mm-hmm. on a TV for a few seconds. Yeah. So they're sort of they're they're speaking to each other in kind of a fun meta way, but that was the first movie to just be like, yeah, in Halloween, blah, 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 you yeah. know, which is awesome, which is a really fun okay. thing about that movie. It was, was it the first one that straight up called that the Virgin Lives? Yes, it's the first one that straight out calls up, uh, calls out all of the it's rules right. in yeah. general. You know, those are sort of unspoken moralistic rules of, of uh, horror movies. Right. And then it just like calls them out. Yeah. 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 I also want to, for my mother listening at home, shout out Sydney Prescott's stove. Um, yeah, shout <laughs> out to that stove. We are getting into her kitchen. Uh, she has this stove called an Aga stove, which is, it was designed for like English countryside homes because it's on 24 seven, just uh-huh. like radiating heat and like the different little like oven holes are different temperatures. Oh, and cool. When I was in middle school, we moved into a house that had one. Mm-hmm. And so we were just like, this is our life now. Like, we're not, it's huge and old and, like, fancy, even though the house was from, like, the 60s. Like, sure. Into it. Yeah. And that's, I can't cook on a normal stove. Like, I don't know how to bake, like, a normal human. But if I went to Sydney Prescott's house, like, I could do it. And I thought it was an interesting choice to have in a home because, yeah, they're, like, only in, like, English countryside homes where like when lambs were born prematurely, they like kept them in the oven. <laughs> well, definitely. I think that that's sort of what you're speaking towards. And that, I mean, that's all really cool is just like this idea that I think permeates eighties and nineties horror movies uh, about very, very serene, uh, very like white America being encroached upon by forces of evil and that's something that those movies deal with really heavily and to me feels somewhat outdated for the time mm-hmm. but now feels super outdated and we'll get into that when we talk about polaroid right and yes. now while i agree with that i just feel that the stove was just nice set dressing oh for <laughs> sure but that movie has a lot of like sort of like New Englandy flourishes. Like it's part of the fabric of the film. You know what I'm saying? Really, there's like 10 Augustos in the US. Like I'm telling you like this shit is like weird and rare. Yeah, like it like, was a surprise. <laughs> a real delight. I noticed it like it's in the big scene when uh, Skeet calls Skeet kills Matthew Lillard. I like saw it in the background. I was like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our stove. Look at that Augusta stove. Yeah, and it's definitely one of the movies that got Skeet on the map. 
which is the main reason why he's in Riverdale. He's one of those like former teen stars. I see it got like a lot of them on the map. Truth. Yeah, I mean, Matthew Lillard was definitely working before Scream. I'd seen him in a lot before Scream. He had already been in a lot of movies. Had Jamie Kennedy been in? No, Jamie Kennedy, I knew from Scream because of Scream. Yeah. And then I had been, I was watching Nev Campbell on Party of Five at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, I was Scream certainly where, a fan of. Scream is where Courtney Cox met uh, David Arquette. That's right. And, and they they ended up, uh, you know, getting married. Yeah. And then divorced, but still working together on the Scream films because they recognize... Uh, when they, I think they just had like an amicable divorce. I think they had an amicable divorce. Um, I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the podcast, but my aunt and uncle were friends with Wes Craven. So they actually went with their kids and had a visit on the set of Scream 2 and ended up hanging out with specifically Courtney Cox and David Arquette and just said that they're like, really nice. <laughs> that oh, they're I like, that they were like, you know, at the time my cousins were like, little girls and that they were just really into having some little girls on the set to say hi to like which is very nice it's a nice story yeah yeah Yeah, I bet they're like wonderful people I will say to Courtney Hawkins' defense I've only seen her on Friends which is just a show I do not like and Cougar Town was just a show I love but Mm -hmm. she plays a little bit dumb Mm -hmm. and then recently there was like a special Christmas like celebrity escape room situation Mm -hmm. and she carried them of course like they would not gotten out if like courtney cox was like boom 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 through the rooms and like everyone else was like i don't know what's happening and she was like i got it i got it i got it problem solved puzzle solved like courtney cox is here to kill it yeah i'm also not a a friends fan uh i think friends it's it's very overrated in my opinion like it worked when it was on I think it worked to an extent when it was on. I watched the first season and was like, I like this. And by the second season, I was like, I don't care about this. And I was like a young teenager. And I was like, I don't care. I don't care about this at all. Like I watched it in that like NBC had like their Thursday night was huge. So there was actually nothing else to watch. Yes. Because like there wasn't streaming. Like you just could only watch what was on TV. And all the networks wouldn't play against it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. NBC was like undefeatable in terms of that block, that Thursday night block. Yeah. yeah, And then they switched to the office and the office tanked them. Yeah. (laughs) Look at us now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The most streamed show in the history of the world, The Office. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but Friends, it is interesting because I never minded Courtney Cox on Friends. And then I definitely really enjoyed her in the Scream movies, very much so. Uh, and Jennifer Aniston, maybe if Jennifer Aniston been in the screen movies, I'd like her, but I like literally can't stand Jennifer Aniston. It's completely weird. She just really bothers me. I <laughs> There's think she always about plays it. herself. Yeah, that might be why. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Which I think we, we should, uh, we'll get into playing yourself when it comes to Coyote Lake. But that being said, uh, let's talk about Sleepwalkers for a little bit because I've never seen it. And All right. Let's talk about Sleepwalkers. Yes, yeah, so Sleepwalkers is, uh, I I took the reins on that one. It is on AMC, which I believe they now have their own AMC Plus situation, but I just use my parents' cable login. Great. Um, and it's from 1992. Yeah, it stars Madchen as the damsel in distress. Um, it's based on a Stephen King novel. Yes. Now, I, the only Stephen King I've read is on writing because I feel like Stephen King is really great in like your preteen years, but I was a real weenie. 
So like, I kind of like missed the boat on Stephen King and now I'm just like, I'm not going to read that. Yeah. I read a lot of Stephen King in my preteen years into my teen years and then kind of stopped. Uh, yeah, I would I think- read something from him again. I'm not like mad at him and I think his stuff is really fun. But- yeah. I think it's just like, you know, I only have so much time and it's not my chosen genre. And I think when I was the right age for it, I was not the right temperament for it. But so in my head, I was like, Sleepwalkers was a thing that really stuck with me. And I was like, oh, this must have been like a great film that like I was just too young for. And I think that maybe it's one of the better Stephen King novels. Yeah, well, Stephen King's novels are always have something fun in them. Yes. But Stephen King, that came out at a time when every single thing Stephen King had written ended up being adapted because it was very hot. Right. And most of them are bad. Most of them are pretty terrible. Yeah, that was like the cocaine. Like, he really jumped from The Shining until, like, the re- the remake of it. The whole, like, middle section there, I think, was maybe, well, like, Pet Cemetery. So, some of, I've never seen the original Pet Cemetery. I did see the remake that yeah. came out last year. I yeah. thought the remake was quite poor. Yeah. Uh, I've heard the original Pet Cemetery is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. that a lot of people who were young at the time, young horror fans really like it. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Sleepwalkers first, but then let's circle back and I'll talk about some of my favorite adaptations to watch instead. Because there is okay. some S- Stephen King stuff I really can recommend. Yeah, yeah, for all my Instagram followers, I did make a pretty solid Shining reference recently on my Instagram. Nice. <laughs> and it was a shout out to all my new teen followers, which I have a ton of new teen followers. And Is that because of your coaching? Yeah, the nice. like official account of the rowing team like re-Instagrammed me and then all these kids who couldn't find my Instagram account but had been trying but apparently not hard enough because it's just my name now follow me. And so I posted that and none of them liked it. They like everything else. They do not like this picture. Got it. Anyway, uh, so Sleepwalkers, it, it opens and like the opening like 30 seconds was very True Detective season two. Mm-hmm. And like aesthetically, and I was like, this could be, you know, that's the episode, that's the season of True Detective I skipped, but I hear that it was still good. And like, I just, I shouldn't have skipped it. Like I just did though. Mm -hmm. Um, And then came back for season three. And then like, it immediately cut into like chaos. Um, And because it's like this like real, like beautiful, like mountain scene that I'm very much like, we're going to spin and we're going to see like Vince Vaughn here. And then like we spin and it's a bunch of dead cats hanging in trees, but like, not well done by the prop department um just like went to the toy store and bought some cats and hung them from trees um and then that really kicks off that this film is about cats (laughs) so would this be a good double feature with the film cats which I know is on HBO right now and I still have not watched and do not plan on it I mean honestly during the this like intense time we're living through uh-huh. i wouldn't watch cats at home it would it'll give you cats gave cats gave me like a mini nervous breakdown and all my friends watching it in I theaters thought, so i saw it on broadway in its first run but uh didn't understand it and don't feel that i need to understand it it's because it's completely it doesn't uh, be- uh, non-understandable yeah. yeah, it was in the last season of Kimmy Schmidt. There was the whole plot that, like, to be yes. in costume, show up in costume. Yes. <laughs> like, there's no audition process for cats. And I totally believe it. Anyway, like, so then it goes to that. And then the immediate next scene, the, the dialogue is, like, so over-descriptive that it felt like it was almost made for, like, a blind audience. 
where like there it's two detectives like investigating the room and explaining it to each other but they're both looking at it all mm-hmm. and then and then it changes and um it goes into like so it's i thought sleepwalkers were gonna be like skinwalkers the like indigenous people legend mm-hmm. and it's not it's people who shapeshift into these like weird cat amalgamations like they're trying to go full cat but they get stuck halfway like the movie cats mm-hmm. um and then they're like well we have to it's just like a mother and a son and it's not clear whether they have to like kill someone as like a blood sacrifice and then like he goes to kiss mansion and he's like sucking her life force out but like i'm calling it a life force un sure what it was yeah not explained yeah Yeah, or if that is gonna kill her or just like make her really sleepy um and then like at one point the car shape shifts from like one type of car to a different type of car Mm -hmm. unexplained unnecessary like there's literally like it didn't need to happen because it shifted into one color and then back to the original color with no one watching (laughs) like it was just like while they were in oof (laughs) but i there is a cat in this movie a real cat named uh i wrote down clovis it is a police cat oh Um, uh uh-huh it drives around with the police officer uh does not drive the car but drives with the police officer wow really disappointed that the cat doesn't drive the car i know it's no (laughs) tunes um and like it feels like at one moment it felt like it was honestly like really self-aware and the cop that clover like hangs around with dies and like you see clover look at clovis look at this and i'm like i said out loud get him clover yeah 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 (laughs) and he did he like totally attacks them and then um like Madison's like in police custody and she's like they think she's crazy because like there's no one there and she's just like very insistent that clover the cat come with her Mm -hmm. But, like, it is just a normal cat. Like, that cat is not going to support her in court. Like, <laughs> that cat saw shit, but, like, it can't tell you. Yeah, that cat's not going to start talking. Yeah, and then, like, the mom died or she teleported somewhere and then it ends. Okay. So, this helps. So, listen. <laughs> uh, I've done some research while you've been filling us in on the plot of this. Or lack thereof. Lack of plot. And there's a few things to know about this movie. Yeah. So uh, this was, it was, the screenplay was written by Stephen King. Oh, that makes sense. Cause that's and, not- <laughs> yeah. And it's not based on a pre-existing uh, story that he wrote. Oh, it's not even it, like a short story. No, it's an original Stephen King screenplay. Wow. That, yeah. And I mean, this is at the height of Coketown USA. For yeah. Stephen I was going to say this is the Coke years. So the fact that it's so disjointed doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Also, Ron Ron Perlman's in it. That's like the only other celebrity. uh, And but does the cat look like Ron Perlman, who's in this movie? Well, all cats kind of do. Yes. There is a Reddit that is great called Cats That Look Like Ron Perlman. So. So, yeah. And it was directed by Mick Garris. Mm-hmm. who uh, I'd love to chat about just for a, a few seconds. He's like, I would say, part of the crew of not like, quote unquote, masters of horror 
70s and 80s directors, uh-huh. but was doing all of this. He's one of the people that was doing all of the secondary work. Like he directed a lot for TV, including episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street series. He right. directed Critters 2. Great. Um, and this is the thing about Mick Garris. He's one of those guys. And, you know, and I like horror movies. I'm not like completely an encyclopedic mind horror geek like a lot of people are and respect mm-hmm. to them. But right when I read his name, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have like a sort of an understanding as to who that is. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't name a movie that he has made. And this is why it's sort of all the secondary work he made. Yeah. So he directed Critters 2. And uh, that made Stephen King want to hire him to make this movie. Right. And um, he's also a writer as well. And he created the TV series. Um, I think he created. Hold on. I was just looking at it. Uh, and he's a big he's a quite he's known as a producer as well. Yes, so he created the Showtime series Masters of Horror, which yeah. is from the 2000s, which was very good, which was a lot of wonderful horror directors directing like one-off episodes of kind of an anthology horror show. And uh, my personal favorite episode of that was an episode that Joe Dante directed, who is the director of Gremlins, uh, mm-hmm. and more notably Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Oh, which is also the best Keen Peel sketch. It is. That is correct. And he made a mo- uh, episode that's of note called Homecoming that is basically about a bunch of zombie soldiers coming back to life. And then it turns out that the reason why they're coming back to life is they all fought in the Iraq war. This is, you know, mid 2000s. Mm-hmm. And they all fought in Iraq. And the twist at the end is that they're all coming back not to attack anybody, but to vote. And that's the end of the episode. And it's cool. It's good. And it was really striking at the time. It was great. Um, so bit of a tangent there. <laughs> but yeah, so Mick Garris, like, has never really, I don't think, he's made some good episodes of some TV shows. He's never mm-hmm. made a movie that I would say is particularly successful, although he's gotten several chances. He did produce Hocus Pocus. That's fun. He was a co-producer on it. Yeah, that's a movie I just don't feel like ever seeing that people are really obsessed with. Hey, the movie I was thinking of before is called Funny Games. Sure. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of this kind of stuff that if you watch it when you're of a certain age, and I acknowledge it strikes you as being really important to you. But as an adult, if you missed it, you missed it, you know, yeah. and, and we all yeah. had our own childhoods and it is what it is, you know? Yeah. I just um, want to say also to anyone listening, if you have not yet seen or read Perks of Being a Wallflower, you're too old and be on it now. Yeah, that is correct. That's if you're right. over 14, that's a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. So that people love that. If you say that to people who have read it when they were 14, they'll break down that's right it's difficult for them that's right but it's garbage so yeah so (laughs) so, king movies (laughs) so yeah so you know it's a shame and this was a period where it was just like stephen king movie after stephen king movie and there's a few of them that can be recommended that are pretty wonderful Mm -hmm. uh my favorite stephen king movie which he did write the screenplay for and was original is Creepshow, 
which came out in 84 and was directed by George Romero, another one of like the big masters of horror who created Night of the Living Dead uh, back in the day. And it's an anthology show or an anthology movie that is basically feels like a horror comic book. Uh, and definitely the aesthetics of it have influenced some Riverdale episodes. So that's great. You know, yeah. uh, that's that's kind of my favorite of the Stephen King movies from the time. And then, you know, I personally feel that The Shining, the Kubrick adaptation is actually somewhat rote uh, and is only fun if you're not a huge fan of horror movies. It's sort of more of a paint by numbers, man goes crazy slasher film but it is a very strong adaptation. So I can't, you know. <laughs> well, and I, but I think that also is kind of important because it did cap, like it did, it's like the horror movie that has a claim. Absolutely, yes. That, like, you don't see a lot of. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And what else from that time? I'm actually not a huge fan of the Brian De Palma adaptation of Carrie. I think that it's, doesn't capture what's so fun about that book. So oh. I wouldn't totally recommend it. It's not, it, I don't love it. Yeah, I mean, the the good ones are few and far between for me. Uh, I feel with the Stephen King Netflix adaptations. Hmm? He's had some recent Netflix ones that have been okay. Oh, Misery, Misery's a strong contender there. Absolutely, yes, which uh, I've never seen, which I've heard is really good and I should just watch it. It's dumb that I've never seen it, yeah. Yeah, there's... um. Did you, Dr. Sleep is new. Dr. Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining. Yeah, and was really, was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and chapter one, okay, so the TV adaptation of It is really enjoyable all the way through with mm -hmm. Tim Curry playing Pennywise is right. definitely a very strong adaptation from the era we're talking about. I think that that adaptation of The Stand from that time as well was quite good. Uh, and I found really frightening as a as a teenager watching it. And then, yeah, and then chapter one of it, the modern it, uh -huh. was excellent. Yeah. And chapter two really dropped the ball. Yeah. <laughs> chapter two is just a mess of what makes chapter one so awesome. Yeah, I think chapter two was like, they felt real cool doing it because people don't know about chapter two really. They don't realize it was like a thing unless you pick up that book and you see how fucking long it is and realize that there's got to be more than what was in that first movie. Well, well, the book flashes back and forth between the characters as adults and the characters as kids. Yeah. And the issue with, I feel, the issue with adapting it the way both the miniseries and the films have adapted it is that it's always going to be more frightening to see kids in peril, mm -hmm. especially when they're good, when they're good actors. Yeah. Compared to like these like 30 somethings. To Bill Hader. <laughs> well, you know, I love Bill Hader, but they don't give him the right stuff to do in the movie. Yeah. And, and the best scenes in it chapter two are the scenes that flash back here and there to the kids. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's tricky. It's a hard adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. Movie we're forgetting is Stephen King is Children of the Corn. Sure. Another kind of, you know, semi-successful. Yeah. You know. Oh, the Green Mile. Okay. So those ones, that's sort of a, a bit of a change. That was a bit of a shift. Those uh, both um uh Shawshank Redemption 
and uh, The Green Mile Mm -hmm. were written by, I believe that he directed Shawshank as well, Frank Darabont. Yeah, Who's an excellent screenwriter. Yeah, he did the first season of The Walking Dead. That's correct. And has always worked in the world of genre in a really, really excellent way. He Mm -hmm. also, Darabont, also wrote the remake of The Blob from the late 80s, which is very good Mm -hmm. and ends up being this kind of screed against America, like uh, against like the military. It's an excellent movie. And he also wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which is probably the best Elm Street sequel as well. So yeah, so Darabont's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the two other Stephen King, like Stand By Me is if you were the right age, one of those ones. Totally. But the other one I want to talk about that I think Darabont did as well is The Mist. Oh, sure. Which I've never seen. Yeah. So The Mist is interesting because it follows very, very closely. It follows the novel and then it has a different ending that people were mad about. And then Stephen King came out and was like, this is a better ending. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Like what this movie did and it's, the ending is like, devastating mm-hmm. and Stephen King is like I wish that's how I ended my like oops <laughs> and that is something that I love about Stephen King's career mm-hmm. is he's always been really quick to acknowledge his influences and he's mm-hmm. also always been very game meets you know like game recognizes game like yeah. he is as much of a hor- fan of the genre as he is a big master of the genre right and so much about what he talks about in he wrote a really great set of essays about horror called dance macabre mm-hmm. and it's really such, such an exploration of his influences and he really wears them on his sleeve and that's a cool thing you know yeah. uh it makes him i think really relatable yeah in terms of being a fucking millionaire author you know <laughs> yeah did he also do the dome that miniseries on cbs that was also an uh episode of the simpsons yes okay yes it was multiple times and like the Simpsons brings it up like a lot yes because <laughs> it was the movie and just like an episode that's right that's right <laughs> anyway uh which also like is a show that Stephen King I think has been on multiple times yes <laughs> uh and also some of the cast of Riverdale has been on the Simpsons so. that is correct which we've talked about yes mm-hmm. All right. Well, that thank you for the recap of Sleepwalkers. That was oh, great. Yeah, don't bother for the listeners at home. Yeah, let's get into the other Don't Bother movie. Right. Uh, let's get cool. into pol- fucking Polaroid. So, so this is a 2017 movie that didn't come out until 2019 because it kept getting delayed because it was bad, because it's bad. Yeah. So there's like, I want to say that because Netflix changes descriptions and stuff based on your algorithm. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, it also like has different pictures. Like depending on what you normally watch. Right. Like my image for Riverdale might be different than your image for Riverdale. Interesting. Yeah. My image for Riverdale is just Jughead eating a burger. No, (laughs) kidding. Kidding. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it it's Netflix knows a lot about you. Uh sure. But so the description I got was that the person who uses the camera and takes a picture dies, which is interesting. Like I felt like that was going to be so interesting because you're used to it being like the person whose picture is taken. It steals their soul or whatever. Mm -hmm. And 
it's like fairly easy to solve because you're like I have this picture and then they died but like the person who took it is like this real sideways move that like is would be a hard mystery to solve I think and then it was just Netflix was wrong and it was the person whose picture was taken dies (laughs) yes that is correct so it's a movie about a fucking haunted Polaroid camera yeah that was made in 2017 Mm -hmm. it was made by this is just I think an interesting aspect of this it was made by Dimension Films Uh which is a subsidiary of the Weinstein company and Dimension makes a lot of low budget horror and then when the Weinstein company went out of business because of the Weinstein scandal Mm -hmm. it was bought by different the all the films that were under Dimension were bought by a different distribution company Mm-hmm. And that's why this movie ended up coming out in the fall of last year, despite the fact that yeah. it was two years old. But the reason why it sat on the shelf is because it is a lousy direct-to-video, very unimaginative, supernatural horror movie. Something it's Final like- Destination, but not as good. It's Final Destination. It's also Nightmare on Elm Street. It's also, and, and we'll we'll talk about this. <laughs> But it's it has yeah. in the opening, uh, Madeline Patch is in the opening of the yes. film, very much like Drew Barrymore, because Madeline is yep. the on the poster. So you think yeah. that it's Madeline. Madeline Patch film. Yeah, it's advertised like, as Madeline Patch film. And Madeline's only in it for the first like seven minutes of the movie. And yeah. I'm kind of relieved that she doesn't have to slog her way through the rest of this movie because the actors in this movie look very bored. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, the burning scene was just like, this feels very solvable. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. They set solvable. a picture on fire and then they all set on fire. Oh no. I will also say that I was watching it during the daytime because that's just when I had time to watch it. And I started like turning off lamps and like closing lampshades to be like, what are they seeing in these Polaroids that I'm not? Totally. It's still unclear. It seems like kind of a smudge. Like, I don't think there was like an, and there was, so this, this. Let's talk about the plot of the movie. Let's, let's get into the plot of it so that people know what we're talking about when we dissect it. So this is a movie about a girl who's into photography, mm-hmm. who is given a Polaroid camera by a friend of hers she works in an antique shop with. Right. And then she starts taking pictures of people. Uh, and then in the pictures of the Polaroid, uh, a uh, like dark shadowy human humanoid figure appears behind them. And it looks like a shadow. And it also totally looks like a smudge, like what you were saying. It looks like a smudge. Yeah, when you're getting a glare. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It also could look like a development error because that's how Polaroids develop. So then these people start dying under mysterious circumstances if the smudge appears on the Polaroid. And then, um, you know, they start figuring out and it's a mystery. Why is this happening? They get into it and it turns out that that camera was owned by a evil, molesty, <laughs> right? Evil, molesty, creepy uh, um, photo, photo teacher mm-hmm. who uh, right before the police are going to arrest him, they find him torturing a bunch of kids in his dark room of the fucking high school. Mm-hmm. And he falls into a vat of chemicals like a Batman villain, 
right? That's like the first thing I thought of is like, oh, you know, it's like, you know, the Joker falls into a vat of chemicals at a playing card factory. So he turns yeah. into the Joker. The Riddler, tur you know, falls into a vat of question marks. So he turns into the Riddler. <laughs> you know, the penguin falls into a vat of penguins at the zoo and turns into the penguin. You know, that's how they all. So he turns, you know, he falls into these dark room chemicals. He dies. And then he he's he, the camera is a cursed object where this asshole ghost is taking his revenge on the town by killing these children. He's an asthmatic ghost who's dressed like a mummy. Yes. Yeah, he looks mummy-esque. Absolutely. He's yeah. bad. He's also bad CGI. Mm -hmm. He's not really played by an actor. He's very abstract, so he doesn't mm -hmm. really have personality. And the layout of the film is the same script structure as a lot of these movies. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a structure for a horror movie that originated with Nightmare on Elm Street. And after Nightmare on Elm Street happened, there was for about 10 years, a slew of these. Mm -hmm. There was Shocker, which was also directed by Wes Craven, which was a uh, convict gets the electric chair and then haunts people through electricity. And there's this stupid movie called Brain Scan with Edward Furlong from Terminator 2, where there's a killer who's hidden inside the DVD, a DVD. A D, I think a, I think a CD-ROM actually. Yeah, it's I mean, a haunted, it's a haunted CD-ROM, but it's the same structure. Where why are these people dying? Oh my god! It revolves around this object, and how is okay? It's a it's something something supernatural. And then there is a more famous example and a more successful because it has a lot of personality and style to it. Child's Play, mm -hmm. you know, which is a haunted doll. So the fact that this is a movie from 2017 with yeah. the structure is in itself like, what happened? Why did they make this? <laughs> and just so you guys don't have to know how it ends, they take a picture of the entity and then just crumble it up. Yes, they take a picture of the entity and crumble it up and then his supernatural powers turn in on themselves. Uh, fuck, fuck that noise. Yeah. <laughs> there is a really wild death in it where they tear the picture in half and the man like splits in half yes however it's a pg-13 horror movie right and not all pg-13 horror movies are bad that's not necessarily they, you can do a lot that's very atmospheric and yeah. i'm totally cool with a horror movie for um kids that age you know that's yeah. fine you know sleepover you know like this was definitely a sleepover movie a slumber yeah. party movie it's just bad there's good slumber party movies you know um like even, I didn't love it, but even like Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark from last year, that's a PG yeah. movie that I'd be like, yeah, like that would be fun for kids to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so he gets torn in half, you don't really see it. And that's the sort of effect that really benefits from gore, which they mm -hmm. don't do. Yeah, it's just, it's a real mess of a movie. And I'm glad that uh, Madeline's only in it for like the first five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> So there's that one. Uh, now let's talk about a, a good movie that I don't want us to spoil too much. That's fine, because I only had half of it on and I didn't pay attention to that half. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, I really love, I loved it. I thought this was an excellent film. I'm very happy I sat and gave this time to watch it. So mm. this is a movie called Coyote Lake and it stars Camila Mendez. And just the basic plot, because I really don't want to spoil too much, 
It's really cool. It is set on the border between Mexico and Texas. And it's about a mother and a daughter. And the daughter's played by Camilla who are basically running rooms to rent. They, they have rooms to rent on a farmhouse. Mm-hmm. And the rooms are occupied by a lot of coyotes. Mm-hmm. People who are smuggling across immigrants illegally. Right. So what they are doing is they are poisoning these people, killing them, and then stealing their money because all of them are carrying thousands upon thousands of dollars of cash. Mm-hmm. And then they end up getting involved with two men from a drug cartel. Uh, and that sort of upends their world. And that's all I really want to say. And it's a movie that I really like because it felt quite Hitchcockian in terms of the allegiances shifting and you never really knowing where any of the characters are standing in the film with each other. Mm-hmm. And the relationships keep shifting in a way that I thought was really dynamic, felt really realistic. The performances in it are excellent. And setting it in that setting is really relevant in a way that there were moments at the beginning of the movie where it's like, is this going to feel kind of exploitive towards Latinx culture and a sort of towards, you know, the struggle of illegal immigration into the United States. And then it didn't, I felt like it was handled really frankly and really dynamically where the characters were super human, super sympathetic and well, well portrayed. So, yeah. So I, I recommend it a lot. And then the thing I want to talk to you about it that just came up from a perspective of our podcast (laughs) is Camilla in it it's not a huge variation on what she does as Veronica on the show, but it's great use of her talents and she's really dynamic in it, uh, I thought, and wonderful to watch. It's a great performance. And like, do you think that's a bad thing that it's sort of samey that like, that's sort of what she does, you know? It's sort of a movie star theory stuff, you know? Yeah, so I think maybe it feels that, did you watch Palm Springs? I haven't watched Palm Springs yet. No. So that's, she's different. She, I mean, she's not in it like a ton. It's yeah. for you guys, it's on Hulu. It's Andy Samberg and Christy Milati. Uh, yeah. I've heard it's Day, awesome. It's so great. And the Groundhog Day on Camilla Mendez's wedding day. Oh, awesome. Awesome. And so she's in it, but it's a, it's a comedic role where mm-hmm. she isn't in danger she's not with like a gang or anything she just like has to deal with this like lunatic sister mm-hmm. because her sister's reliving the day and Got it, it. it's so it's i mean it's not meaty but it's not she's not just playing veronica again yeah yeah i mean this is sort of like definitely i guess that there's a relationship in that it's like another teenage girl role Mm-hmm. who's also being dominated by a parent like that's part right. of the but you know this character is never going to go in and uh tear the tablecloth off her mom's table you know <laughs> which is all we want to see from veronica and riverdale yeah. you know i think it's if this were like her eighth movie like this i would be a little annoyed, but like it's two movies yeah or like and- i wouldn't say there's any like typecasting really I also feel that this is a great proof that she is an actor that will be able to leap to film mm-hmm. in a big way once Riverdale is done. And I really hope, wish that for her. Yeah. Um, so far, 
I feel like the movies they've done have been very uh for for teens I know we talked I talked about Chemical Hearts and how like Lily hyped it up to be different from all these teen movies and then it was like exactly it's just a teen movie yeah yeah uh, and like, that Cole Sprouse movie that's like Boy in the Bubble, which is super for teens, you know. Wait, which one? The Cole Sprouse movie where oh, he has like the yeah. immuno issue. Yeah. Because I jumped because then the way you described it was Bubble Boy. And I was like, this is not like Bubble Boy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. No, this movie is yeah. for is for adults, which is yeah. I mean, I think the teenagers would enjoy it. There's nothing in it that's too intense for teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, although it is, you know, warning, there is some violence in it for sure. Yeah. You know, there's some stuff with guns. It is a movie not, about drug running. It's not for teens, like the same way, like Polaroid is for teens. Five Feet Apart is for teens. Definitely. And uh, that's, like, that's cool. I have, I'm really glad that yeah. whoever, like more than anything that whoever Camilla is working with in terms of her representation uh-huh. thought this was a good move for her career. I yeah, think it's, I, I think it's a good movie for her. I don't know who KJ's uh, religious musician movie was for. Like, I don't know what the age range for that was, like what the target demo was. Yeah, it's like for 40 year old religious people. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, it seems like KJ beyond Riverdale is going for a whole other thing. And I think his career moves might be clouded a little bit by his faith. And uh, I don't know if that's a nice thing to say particularly, but. I he, feel like he could get roles that are different if he wanted to. He like on Instagram started hyping up like his personal trainer's business, which isn't a multi-level marketing scheme, but really reads like one mm-hmm. and is like way too much money and is definitely not safe for many people to take on as like a... Mm-hmm you're in quarantine starting your own work workout thing absolutely and like the pictures kj posts of himself like super shredded are like i think this like the muscle tone is like i'm gonna talk about baseball there's this problem with the yankees which is that uh these guys come through from college being trained as like for different skill sets so they keep getting hurt because their muscles aren't in the right parts of their body to play baseball totally and I feel like it's like it looks like that on KJ, and he's not trying to play baseball. Like he's, I don't know what shape this is supposed to be, but like there's not a lot of balance. Well, I think that that's I think that that's a big problem uh, with. Uh, sorry, what was I going to say? I think that's a big problem with what we expect out of the male body, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. In order to look like KJ Appa, you really have to be starving yourself or depriving yourself, and right. also even there's elements of it that are, you get that look through dehydration as well, mm-hmm. you know? So like, I'm sure for like the the shirtless scenes in Riverdale, he doesn't drink water that day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Stuff that isn't healthy for anybody uh, on like just a basic fitness level. Yeah. So yeah, you know, hopefully if anybody, I would, I would imagine cost aside because i'm sure it's insanely expensive to work with kj appa's personal trainer yeah but cost aside i would imagine that if you were to hire him uh he would work with you on your goals and do something more healthy than what they're doing for someone like kj Appa. yeah i you think know? it was a one-on-one but this is like buying a program like a preset program like sure like a couch to 5k is preset but couch to 5k is like a really good thing if you're at home because it's uh with the presumption that you do absolutely nothing to start. Yes, and the running and running is good. Running is good. Yeah, for you. yeah. And this says 
that like it's they say it's great for anyone to start with but then also if you look at what it starts with you can't just jump into a 45 minute high intensity workout no you can't do that and like you need equipment it's just like for anyone that's maybe looking at doing this program like i i'm barely a sports professional but i am one and don't do this that is correct yeah very good so yeah so just you know this was a fun definitely a bit more of a meandry episode than regular but that's fun because it's it's a bonus episode yeah so yeah so we can recommend scream we can recommend coyote lake leave polaroid and sleepwalkers to us we we watch them for you uh but yeah but if you end up watching any of these movies please you know if you want to talk to us about them uh, we would love that so you know you know where to find us on social media you know just search xox riverdale on twitter facebook or instagram and yeah, you know, uh, thanks to our editor, Angelie Mercado. Yeah, and our theme songwriter, Louis Aronowitz, who, um, God, I should post that to our Twitter. He sent me the Fight Club musical with Casey Cott. That is awesome. And it is, I skipped around and barely paid attention. It is, you know, like it's a thing that happens. It's part of a podcast that like does musical of movies that already exist and it just like feels really unnecessary and not well done love it um i let me just tell you what it's called instead it's called fight club the musical um the podcast is it's insert movie here Uh uh-huh it's what it's called uh it's only episode five of the thing it's you know look for it if you want sure that's all that's yeah i mean <laughs> yeah it. but uh thanks to everybody that's that's listening yeah uh we are these uh off season episodes have been really fun yes and if you have a suggestion for one you know feel free to suggest and um because we have you know we're gonna try to do these every other week until the show starts up again in january yep yeah if you want me to just talk about community or baseball or community and baseball I could do either. <laughs> yeah. And if you want me to interview Kate about community or baseball, I'm happy to prepare some questions. <laughs> yeah. Kate, I really, Kate I mean, what is baseball? I was really hunting people down to talk about the Dodgers game the other night, but it was Dodgers Braves. And I don't know anyone who's independently a fan of either of those Sure. Teams. So it was just like yelling into the Twitter void. Like someone <laughs> talk to me. Talk to me about the Dodgers. <laughs> Guys, this is wild. For the listeners at home, they scored 10 runs on two outs. So they scored one run. And then they had two outs and they scored another 10. And this was all top of the first. <laughs> so they got 11 runs in the first 30 minutes of the game. And, and then you, had, had you know what to talk about it with. I'm so sorry. Eight and a half innings after. Yeah, it was much. It was a lot. And, uh, you know, I don't like the Dodgers, but I do like the Dodgers. And <laughs> a good World Series for nice people would be Braves versus Rays. But a good World Series for just like watching people purposely hit each other with baseballs at 95 miles per hour will be Astros Dodgers. So look out <laughs> for that. <laughs> All right. For XOXO Riverdale, I'm Louie Perlman. I'm Kate Vatter. Bye. Bye. <laughs>